When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And when Esther's Enoch's and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for the annihilation which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain it to her, and he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and to plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported this to Esther, what Mordecai had said, and then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. And when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do you think because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape? For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your family's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat, drink for three days, night and day, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, and even though it is against the law, if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Let me read uh, some portions from Esther chapter 1 and then uh, make some comments. The passage in your bulletin today, Esther chapter 4, I thought we would get there today in the sermon. We're not going to get there. Uh, This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, and Xerxes ruled over 127 provinces reaching from India to Cush. At that time, Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom, the splendor and glory of his majesty. And when these days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace, for all the people from the least to the greatest 
who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen, purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mahuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles. For she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king, Karshima, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Memukin, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memukan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the people of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Mamukan proposed, sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own house. Uh, King Xerxes is uh, the Greek name of this individual. Uh, the Hebrew Bible has Ahasuerus, which is what you find uh, in the King James. And uh, King Xerxes uh, started to reign in 485 B.C. His father had started to invade Greece and had actually uh, defeated Athens in battle. And uh, yet the Greeks had finally repulsed him. And so Xerxes thought, I will go and finish off the job. 
And so he spent a number of years preparing to invade Greece. He invaded Greece and uh, supposedly had five million men. Huge number. Uh, as many as three million soldiers, five million altogether, including a huge navy. And uh, they invaded Greece and uh, he was repulsed. Xerxes lost the battle, lost the huge naval battle, and uh, world history was changed. That was then the rise of Greece. And you probably studied that in your grade 9 history of Western civilization. How many of you remember grade 9? <laughs> Long time ago. <laughs> uh, when I was in grade 9, we learned about it from the Greek point of view. <laughs> because that's that's really the beginning of European history and the rise of Europeans in dominance with the defeat of Persia. And uh, after, the, after the Greeks are defeated by Persia, you then see a decline of the Persian Empire and it goes down, 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 and eventually Alexander the Great conquers all of that world and the whole world then kind of becomes Greek. And that happens until the time of Jesus around which time the Romans rise to ascendance. But at this point in time, Xerxes, even though he is lost in Greece, reigns from Greek, Greece all the way to India, from the Russian mountains, the Caucasus, all the way down to the Indian Ocean, all the way to the Sahara Desert. It's a massive empire. Massive. And uh, he, at this point, is the most powerful person the world has ever seen. Money, power. But he's been defeated in Greece. And so he goes home and seemingly throws a huge party to make himself feel good. I really am important. I really do have wealth. And he goes back to Persia, and there he nurses his wounds, his pride, and he celebrates and uh, enters a period of debauchery. And uh, there he has a good time with his nobles. In the middle of the party, he decides to bring out his trophy wife. <laughs> Look how great I am. I really am great. I have the most wonderful woman in the world and the most beautiful woman in the world as my queen. And he asks her to come in in front of all the nobles. And uh, she doesn't want to have any part of it. I am not here just to be looked at in the middle of your party and for whatever reason refuses to go. Um, one of the things from history that we know about Xerxes is he seems to be very weak and vacillating. So he always asks his advisors what he should do. And uh, within his court, he reigns for 20 years. Uh, the eunuchs have a lot of power. And court intrigue has a huge influence on what happens in the Persian Empire. And so he asks them, what are we going to do about Queen Vashti? And the advice is, you need to never see her again. Make it a law. And we need to send this out as an edict to the whole empire that wives have to obey their husbands. Otherwise, we'll have a movement. 
They're going to they're gonna say, look, the queen didn't obey her husband. I don't have to obey my husband. And who knows what would happen if we had that kind of a movement. So let's put a stop to it. Let's make a law and send this law everywhere because we want it to come from the top down that wives have to obey their husbands. Now, that takes us to chapter 2. Let me read chapter 2, and then I've got a whole bunch of things to say. Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every realm, province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those who had taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. The girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features. And Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa, put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background. Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. This is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgaz, Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. She won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet. 
Esther's banquet for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Uh, Let me just talk about those two chapters. First of all, um, and this, this is just right off the front, when we talk about the book of Esther being in the Bible, right? This book is in the Bible. The major theological issue with Esther is that the name of God is never mentioned. God is never mentioned. It's strange. It's strange that you would have a book in the Bible where God is not even referred to. Weird, right? It's weird. And uh, I think there's a reason for it. Um, The law, the Torah, is never mentioned in the book of Esther. Prayer is not mentioned in the book of Esther. The book never discusses theology uh, or, or, or living a moral life. That is not found in the book of Esther. Uh, issue number two. Uh, interpreters today, those who read it and talk about Esther, are either negative or positive. That seems to be one, one or the other. So here's the negative. People come to book Esther, and if they want to say negative things, they will say things like, you notice how Esther wins everyone's favor? It doesn't tell you why she wins favor. It's because she's manipulative. And she manipulates men and manipulates women, and so she wins their favor. And you see how she becomes, she goes into, she goes into the king. It's because she's an immoral woman. That's why she goes and sleeps with the king. Negative. Some are completely positive. The positive would say, Esther, this is, this, is, this is one of the greatest books in the Bible about God and about a virtuous woman and about people living for God. And uh, that, that's the other side of the coin. Perfect examples of righteous living, Esther and Mordecai. One or the other. Now, in my opinion, and of course I give you that last because mine's always right, it seems to me so often the book is neutral. So it tells you Esther wins the favor of all these people, and then it never tells you why. It never tells you because it's God doing it, and it never says it's because she is such a wonderful person or, or she so wins them. It just says that it happens. And, it, and, it, and it's neutral. Uh, often that's the way it is. There are other troubling issues in the book. And let me give you a number of troubling, troubling, troubling issues. Troubling issue number one. Um, Esther is becoming part of a harem. And uh, the way a harem works is once you have been selected to see the king and you are, you are joining a group of women. And as soon as one of these women goes in and sleeps with the king, she is now part of the harem for life. So once you go and sleep with the king once, you now join the harem. You're never allowed to leave. You're never allowed to go and get married. You now have to stay in the harem for the rest of your life, even if, you've only, even if you only see the king one time in your lifetime. 
Uh, that's what's going on right in this chapter that we just read. Right? So, so sometimes you think of Esther being a beauty contest and we have all the most beautiful women and they're all lining up and the king goes, okay, I like that one. And she's the queen. It's, 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 it's a little more distasteful than that. All of these women have been brought into the harem. They're now part of the harem. And then when they go in to see the king, this is now a night of sex. And after the night of sex, they then go back to a different part of the harem where they're now a part of the harem for the rest of their life. That's a troubling issue. You see in the chapter, uh, she has to work hard on her figure for a year to be the most beautiful that she can possibly be. Uh, Part of this is, of course, Xerxes is not a very good person. This is an immoral person. And before a woman can share his bed, she has to work on herself for a year before she can come and be with him. And then maybe he will never see her again the rest of his life, but she can't go out and live a normal life. She's now part of the harem. Um, Now, some people actually aspire to that. Right? That's, That's the distasteful part of the book of Esther. Some women are thinking this is a great thing to be a part of the king's harem. Just like some men are thinking it would be a great thing to be a eunuch and to be powerful and to be, and to be in a position like this. Troubling issue number two. Xerxes does not look good in history. You see him in this book and uh, sometimes in the book he's kind of passive. You can see he gets pushed around gets pushed around by guys in chapter 1 who says, write an edict, Tell, send out a law that every wife has to obey her husband. Haman will then do the same thing and say, there's a people who, who are causing problems in your land. Just send out an edict that they can all be killed. And he does it. When Xerxes uh, first wanted to invade Greece, he, bought, he, he built, he actually built a bridge across the Hellespont. And uh, I think it, the bridge was just completed a few years ago, right? There, hasn't been, there wasn't a bridge across the straits of uh, the Hellespont. But he built a bridge, pontoon bridge across, across the straits, and the sea wrecked the bridge. So he had the sea whipped 300 times to teach it a lesson. How dare you thwart what I want to do. Problem number three. Um, The Jews who wanted to live a godly life have already returned to the land. Uh, They returned to the land when Cyrus, uh, Cyrus produced an edict. He was the first great Persian king. Cyrus said, let's rebuild the temple. And all the Jews who wanted to live according to the Torah returned to the land where there would be a temple and high priests. They could celebrate the Passover. They could go and sacrifice at the temple. And all those who took their Bible seriously, that's what they did. They returned to the land. Mordecai and Esther have not returned to the land. Uh, Apparently they have found that uh, where they were living was good enough for whatever reason. Number four. 
the lack of statements about God, prayer, and other religious activities, and the lack of statements about character are troubling. For instance, uh, Mordecai will not bow down to Haman. It doesn't tell us why he won't bow down. So those who want to take the negative view are allowed to push a negative value on it. Haman doesn't bow down because he's proud. Those who want to take a positive view say, well, Haman won't bow down because he is such a religious man and so in love with God that he won't bow down to anyone but God. But the text doesn't tell you. Esther, the book of Esther, is not found in any of the Dead Sea Scrolls not a fragment. Um, It's not quoted or referred to in the New Testament. Now, I heard this from somebody else. I don't know for sure. In the Veggie Tales version of the Bible, Bob the Tomato does not appear in Esther. That's the only book of the Bible Bob the Tomato doesn't appear in. Well, what are we supposed to make of this? Point number one the people of God will often find themselves in compromising situations where the people of God are living less than exemplary lives or they're caught up in situations beyond their control. That's what's happening in the book of Esther. Esther joins the harem. She does not have a choice. There's no choice there. When they say, go and find the most beautiful women... They don't ask you to come and volunteer. They go and they take you. They bring you into the palace. Some preachers, as they preach about Esther, say, she should have just said no. And when when it was time for her day, she should have said, no, I'm not going in to see the king unless he marries me. That's not a choice. She has to go. She's forced to go. It's that or die. Uh, Many of us are put in situations where evil is done to us or there's evil around us, and yet we have to live for Jesus Christ and live for God. I think that's what Esther is doing. Let me give you some other examples in the Bible. Distasteful examples in the Bible. For instance... David and Solomon, both had mul- they both had multiple wives. And today when we look at that, we go, how terrible. Yeah, it was wrong. Or Gideon. Remember Gideon, great hero of the Bible? His family is actually, they're idol worshipers. These are Israelites who are supposed to worship only God. And yet his father is the one who is in charge of the Baal and the Asherah pole, which God tells Gideon to go tear down. He comes from a family of idol worshipers. Or if you look at Samson, and you go, how wonderful is Samson's life? And you would have to say, yikes! (laughs) That's not a great example. In fact, we would not call Samson as our pastor, would we? (laughs) No, we would look at his life and we'd go, no, you can't. You probably wouldn't take him because of his long hair. But there would would be better reasons not to have Samson as the pastor. 
There's something distasteful and disgusting in the harem of Xerxes, yet we cheer for Esther anyway. And here she is in a situation where she has no control, yet I think she still lives a life for God. I think that's why you have such a nuanced book. It sees that, you know something, everything is not perfect in this world. But even in this imperfect world where people want to wipe out the Jews, God has a way to save his people. And through the midst of terrible things, he finds a way to do it. When Joanne and I were in Hawaii, we were at a swimming pool. And these two teenage girls started talking to us. And I don't know why they started talking to us. Maybe Joanne remembers. Maybe because we were just talking funny. They asked us, they asked us where we were from. And we, we said, we're from Ontario. We're, I said, no, we said we're from Canada. From Ontario, Canada. And they said, oh, we know where Ontario is. That's where Justin Bieber's from. So... They, they, asked us if, they asked us if we'd been to Stratford. And we said, yes, we've been to Stratford. And they go, yeah, that's Justin Bieber's hometown. And so they go, have you met Justin Bieber? I said, no, we have not met the Biebs. Um, now, here, here's, here's why I'm bringing that up. Now, just, Justin Bieber claims to be a Christian. In fact, he might be the most famous Christian in the world right now. Think about that. Justin Bieber is the most famous Christian in the world. A couple of weeks ago, he was in the news. And he was in the news because he was worshiping in Australia with Hillsong. And uh, Hillsong had a huge concert, and Justin Bieber was out leading him in worship. Of course, he was doing some crazy dancing like this. And yet we would say... We have seen Justin Bieber enough time in the news to know how can he be a Christian and how can he live in that world and claim to be a Christian. It doesn't seem to make any sense. This past week, Glenn Campbell died. Here's a man who also lived a very worldly lifestyle. Spent time with the Rat Pack, Sinatra's The Beatles. Played on a lot of the Beach Boy albums as a guitar player. Snorted cocaine like crazy when he lived in L.A. And yet Glenn Campbell is known for being a Christian. He's known for being a good Christian man. Now I've used Bieber and Glenn Campbell as examples of individuals uh, claiming to be Christians and living for God. And seemingly that I take them at their face value. That's true. And yet you look at the life and you go, it's ridiculous, the lifestyle. There's no way you can be a Christian and be in that environment and, uh, and, and live that way. Uh, that's something like the book of Esther. You have situations less than ideal. You go, like, how could you, how could you live a godly life and be part of a harem like that? And uh, how, how, how is that possible? And it might be that uh, you have come from that kind of a life. A life where you have lived a very worldly life. You have lived a crazy past. And you might think, is there still a place for me? There is still a place for you. 
God forgives us of our sins. Holiness compromised and holiness ruined is not holiness lost forever. Esther seems to be so compromised. Remember the story of Daniel. Daniel refuses to eat at the king's table. Refuses. Refuses the wine and all the fancy things and instead has vegetables and water. Esther does not seem to take that. And yet God's going to use her. Point number two. So that's point number one. People of God often find themselves in compromising situations where the people of God are living less than exemplary lives and when evil is forced upon them. Point number two, the people of God and God's chosen people will continue to arouse the anger of people and God's people will be hated. It's one of the major themes of the book of Esther. Find out in Esther chapter 3, Haman decides that he wants to kill the Jews. He does it because Mordecai won't bow down to him. And he becomes incensed. How, how, how is it this man won't bow down? And he finds out that he's a Jew. And he decides, I'm not just going to get Mordecai. I'm going to get every Jew in the Persian Empire. That includes all the ones in Israel. And they send out an edict all across the empire to kill all the Jews. Essentially he's saying, let's kill all the Jews, let's kill every Jew in the world. Right? Have you, have you heard of that one since then? <laughs> Seems to keep popping up. Let's kill every Jew in the world. The people of God and God's chosen people, Israel, will continue to arouse the anger of people and God's people will be hated. I was just having a discussion yesterday with with uh, my in-laws about what I think is going to happen in the future. And here's what I said I think is going to happen in the future. I said we're going to have a chance, we're going to have an opportunity as Christians to be martyrs. That's what the future holds for us. And some of you are going, some of you are sitting there thinking, I don't want to be a martyr. <laughs> I want to miss that. And I'm saying to you, there's nothing better than that. That is the ultimate following of Jesus Christ. When you lay down your life for Him and somebody else takes it because you follow Jesus. Sign me up. Let's do it. Listen, you don't want to die slowly <laughs> in your sleep. Let's be killed for Jesus. Let's accomplish something great. That's what the future holds. Is there in the past? Continues into the future. God's people will be hated. Point number three, and we better close with this one. At first, I was going to I was doing going to do all of Esther in one sermon. We're going to have to take at least two. Even when God's people, point number three, even when God's people are found in compromised situations. God does not cut them off. He is kind and merciful and forgiving. Even if, even if the Jews should have left Persia and gone back to Israel. Notice God doesn't, God doesn't give up on them. Still saves them. Um, even if Esther should have said, I'm a Jew. But she, she hides that. 
Mordecai tells her to hide her Jewishness. And even if she should have said, I'm a Jew, and Mordecai should have said, you should have told the king that's what you were the first time you saw him. King Xerxes, glad to see you tonight. I'm a Jew. Even when God's people are found in compromised situations, God does not cut them off. He's kind and merciful and forgiving. It's another way of saying that when you sin and when you've done wrong, there's still hope. He still loves you, forgive you. doesn't mean he's going to remove all the consequences of your sin, but the relationship between you and him repaired. All it takes is a prayer. Father, forgive me. You're forgiven. Um, tonight uh, tonight uh, at uh, the baptismal, at least two will be baptized. Um, if you're thinking about it, please talk to me after the service. It would be great to see people who are willing to follow Jesus Christ, show that publicly, and to follow him in baptism. Um, let me encourage you. Esther is a beautiful story. A woman in a difficult place who is brave, selfless, and used by God to save her people. Let's look to the Lord in prayer.